Welcome to the Discover Church Podcast. We are a Christian faith community based out of Denver, Colorado. Join us this week as we bring our uncertainties to an unchanging God. If you have any questions about the sermon, please feel free to send them in. You can email them to us at hello at discoverdenver.church. I hope you're finding this to be really uh, insightful that Jesus says things about himself so that we don't actually have to just do the guesswork. Uh, because everybody has something to say about Jesus. Now, here, here's something I want to admit to you. I think tonight is going to be, it's going to feel like a family getting together, talking about what Jesus is like and what he's capable of. And I think that if you're a guest with us, you should just pull up a chair, which they're nailed to the ground, so you can just sit in a chair, and you should just say tonight, a part of a family meeting, and this family is going to talk about what Jesus is capable of with this statement. This statement originally was going to be saved for the end of the series, the resurrection and the life. But, but here's the thing. That's not how John lays it out. In fact, when Jesus says that, it's not after he rose from the dead. So I hope you know on Resurrection Sunday, on April 1st, we should talk about after Jesus rose from the dead. We shouldn't talk about Lazarus necessarily. But this story is about Lazarus. And John lays it out in a way because he's getting our eyes on Jesus and what he says. And, and here's the whole, the central idea of it all that it revolves around. Resurrection isn't something that Jesus just does. It's who he is. And John gets our eyes lifted to Jesus in this way. Resurrection isn't what, just what Jesus does. It's who he is. Now on Easter, we'll talk about when he did it, what did that do in the entire world? What did that do in the spiritual realm? And what does that mean for us when we say he conquered sin and death? We'll talk about that. But John doesn't lay it out that way. He lays it out in a way that he gets your eyes focused on what if Jesus said he does this and he started showing power of this. Now, the most powerful thing is if you can raise yourself from the dead. But that's Easter Sunday. But, but what if Jesus was actually saying, no, no, I, this isn't just what I do. This is who I am. I am the resurrection and the life. And this is how he lays it out. So we just, I'm just letting you know, we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep going with that. So, um, Lord, would you just help us to know what it means when you say, I am the resurrection of life. And I am fully aware of my, the death in my life. Not fully aware, partially aware. Um, and, and aware of what's going on in so many of our lives here. But if you're in this room and you are the resurrection, things cannot stay dead. I, I believe that. In Jesus' name, amen. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Now this statement, let me tell you, this statement would have been really helpful when I was like, I don't know, about eight years old. What I'm going to tell you is a traumatic story, especially, I mean, listen, you're, you got real serious. I mean, it's traumatic, especially in Denver, where we love animals. Um, when I was like eight years old, I used to do this thing where I would build box forts. We lived on the Air Force Base, and so... We would, people would call it breaking in. We would sneak into homes that were abandoned and in the garage and in the patio area, we would just get all the boxes that people threw in there, cut them open and make these box forts, right? So my parents would always go, where'd you go? And they'd literally have to go open garages around the cul-de-sac of homes that were abandoned. And we were bound to be found in one of them in a box fort. So my goal at eight years old was literally to live in a box was what I was trying to do at eight. And in doing this, you kind of had to sweep the floor first because it was just nasty and there was a bunch of bugs. So that was the first part that we would make 
all the people who just moved in around the block, they would do that if you want to participate in the box fort, okay? And in doing that, we found this, this bird, this baby bird that was dying. And when I say dying, I mean, it looked pitiful. I don't know where it came from. I mean, a nest, but I don't know like what nest it came from. And it was just kind of dying. And we're sitting there, and I remember just thinking pretty fresh in my faith, um, and the thing I knew about faith at seven years or at eight years old was if I prayed enough and believed enough, something was going to happen. Now, that's at least what I thought. And so I thought, let's just pray for the resurrection of this bird. So we start praying. We start praying like I'm going, God, heal this bird. And as I'm praying this, I remember the bird actually vomited, which I'm like, my prayers, my prayers don't work. So my prayers are going south. So if you ever have a dying animal, don't text me and say, pray for my dying animal. I just, I will pray for your dying animal, uh, but I don't know what's going to happen if I do, okay? But I know what happened in this story was the birds start, and then, and then we're in the patio at this point, and then this older guy comes in and goes, what are you guys doing? And, and we're like, we're praying for a bird, you know? We like found a bird, and he goes, well, that bird's not going to make it. Goes and grabs a hammer and says, scoot back, and went to the bird. To the bird, I mean, to the skull of the bird. And I'm sitting there, eight years old, going, I start crying. I'm going, the bird, the bird could have made it. And the old man goes, no, the, the bird is going to die. We just need to put it out of its misery. That's what you need to do. Yep, that was really traumatic. This is how I remember that. I haven't thought of that story in a long time until yesterday. I was on the patio nailing in a part of the porch. I had a hammer and I was hitting the side of the porch because some nails came off. And I, I just had this image of a bird's head as I hit it. I don't know where it came from. And then, probably because I'm like preparing for the message in a weird, twisted way, the enemy or God, I don't know which one, put it in my head. And I just went, whack. And then I remembered I should tell them about this because here's what I say. You don't, like, you don't have to live more than like 28 or 48 hours to know. That's kind of our MO. That's how we operate is we pray and pray and pray. And then there comes a point where we just go, get the hammer. The, the situation's not going to change. Right? We just go, this thing's not going to change. It's really, we're going to keep praying, but let's just get the hammer and let's put the situation out of its misery. Let's not think about it again. Let's just concede to the fact things are going to stay the way that they stay. So statements like, I am the resurrection and the life, you go, maybe you were, maybe you are, but not with me. Not with me. It's how it feels. That's how it feels. Now, if you've never felt that way, you can polish your halo while the rest of us talk, okay? But for the rest of us, we felt when we pray and we want stuff to happen, and like we want it more than anything in the world, the bird to come alive, whatever the bird is in your life, and then we're like, just get the hammer. We'll resign to it. This is typically how um, whenever I would deal with hard situations, I would hear Christian cliches. When I say hard situations, this is what I mean. You've prayed about it. You've tried to ask God for something to happen in this situation. So it can be personal. It can be relational. Man, it can be with your roommate. It can be with the finding a job. It can be between you and your spouse. Praying, praying, praying. And you go, should we just resign that nothing's going to happen? And the Christian cr cliches that come up that I've heard are something like this. Now, if you've never heard them, you can thank God you've never heard these. But here's some of them. Here, here throw that first one up there. God's no isn't a rejection, it's a redirection. And I know what the intention is behind this, but if you are in the middle of suffering and pain, that doesn't help at all. It's really hard. You're like, oh, I don't, I don't want the redirection. 
Okay, so let's keep going. Here's the next one. Some of God's gifts are unanswered prayers. Now listen to me. If you ever hear me say this to you, something happened. Like something, I'm on some sort of drug. Don't say this to people because what they're praying for could be very much God's will. When you're sitting here and you're praying for a spouse because you want to experience love, you want to experience love in a committed way, um, it's going to be really hard to say this to you because I will take you to passages in the Bible where God says that it is good that man not be alone. If you're a woman praying for a spouse, take you to passages in the Bible where men offer so much um, by way of being married to a woman. Maybe you're here and you're praying for healing. I don't know where in the Bible you would find that healing is not part of the kingdom of God. So th this doesn't really help. So let's go to the next one. Sometimes God doesn't give you what you want, not because you don't deserve it, but because you deserve so much more. Okay, let's just keep going. I get really irritated. I get really irritated at this. And, and ladies and gentlemen, these are the quotes of people who are not experiencing pain, suffering, real life. In fact, as I was writing this message, my phone went off with an amber alert of a two-year-old boy that had gone missing. So I want you to know the real world is what we live in. Your discouragement, when you hear Jesus say things like, I am the resurrection of the life, your, your level of excitement when you go, it doesn't, it doesn't go up, it just kind of plateaus, or I experience some major doubt, is absolutely normal. And the story we're going to read deals with that. It deals with it. In fact, the story that we're going to read in John chapter 11, where Jesus makes this statement, does not avoid what you've been dealing with. It doesn't dismiss it, but it doesn't absolutely cure it. It does something totally different, okay? That's what I want you to know. And I, I want to put it out there that Jesus doesn't just do the resurrection. He, he, he like, this is who he is. So in your life, when you experience death, and by death, I mean, you, like people have come at you with these kind of quotes. When you experience death, the presence of Jesus, I believe, resurrects what is dead, but it does something more than you would have imagined, but our eyes might have been in the wrong place. So the good news is these quotes are not in scripture, Okay. So if these quotes were in Scripture, you had good reason to go, I don't want to read from that book. These quotes aren't in Scripture. What is in Scripture, it gives us a lot of hope. It's John chapter 11. And we're going to look at this. We're going to look at Thomas. We're going to look at Martha. And we're going to look at Mary. And we're going to look at what they actually are experiencing because we're like right in line with this. So real quick, if you came in here and you're like, man, it just like I came in here to be excited about Jesus. You will be more excited, I think. But I just want to put a real life perspective out there that birds die by hammers and life gets hard. Okay, that should have been the name of the message. Birds die by hammers. John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, I want you to realize something. Jesus is really close to this family. Like, these aren't far distant off. These aren't like just Facebook friends that message every now and then. No, no. Like, Jesus knows this family really well, okay? So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through this. 
What's amazing is there are horrible situations that God will be glorified through in the end. And I believe when we see the glory of God through the lens of suffering, that's a whole different perspective. And what it does to the world is it draws people to Christ. We'll, we'll see this later. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now, before you throw up the verse 16, I'm going to just fill it in real quick. They go back and forth, back and forth. They're talking about, is that really where you want to go back? And then this is verse 16, okay? John 11, verse 16. When Tom, then Thomas, also known as Didymus. Now, that sounds like a really bad rapper name. Didymus. Didymus. Okay, so said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, this doesn't really sound like the voice of faith. Let us also go that we may like see something happen. No, no. Thomas says, let us also go that we may die with him. We will die with him. Let's do this, guys. Let's go so that we may die with him. What I want to talk about is that Thomas was dead in his doubt. So let's, let's pause there for a second. Here at Discover, we talk a lot about, you're, you have uncertainty in your life. We can commit in the face of uncertainty. What does it mean that you're dead in your doubt? Is that, um, well, we'll get there in a second, but the, Thomas's pr whole perspective was on something, uh, was on only his doubt, and that his life was going to just end with death and it wasn't on the activity of Jesus. He's dead in his doubt. It's really hard when we approach seasons like Easter. And when we talk about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, it's really hard because we all are experiencing death in our lives at, at some point. So, some of you are experiencing real death. Like to where someone literally in your life, you got a phone call and they're dying. Some of you are experiencing death by way of nothing's happening in an area that you're asking God, you are praying and there's, and there's nothing that you're doing wrong, but you're asking him and you're wondering why is he not going through? And you start to doubt, it, does, does God not love me? Am I the exception to this whole thing? Some of you experience doubt in that way. And doubt creeps in. Now, here's what's interesting. When doubt creeps in, we can die in that state, meaning we can resign to that state where we don't even pursue Jesus anymore. We concede, we grab the hammer, or we can press in and do what ended up happening, and that was watching Jesus at work, not just in our life, but we start to see what he does in the world. Because again, it's not just the resurrection, but he's, he is the resurrection. So in the rooms that he's in, he's doing stuff. And sometimes in our doubt, one of the best remedies is when we take our eyes off of actually what's bothering us and put it on the Lazarus in the room. You put it on the Lazarus. Notice the remedy for Thomas was later when Jesus says, go roll the stone away. And Thomas gets to see Jesus at work. Did his doubt totally go away? No, it didn't go away because after the resurrection, we know that Thomas got this name throughout church history of doubting Thomas, and rightfully so, because he was asking questions of, how do we know? I need to put my hand in his side. I need to feel the scars. And, and Jesus is very gracious. Did his doubt go away? It didn't. But what ended up happening was Thomas did die, but Thomas died a martyr's death, and Thomas was a church planter. And Thomas was someone who didn't give up, and he was able to see 
the work of Jesus in the room because it wasn't just the resurrection he wanted to experience that was the goal. It's the resurrection in the room. He knew Jesus was in the room and Jesus was always doing something. Always doing something. But, but that's why I say doubt isn't bad. Faith without doubt is like really hard. I mean, that's, that's, um, it just means you're not really wrestling. You're not really experiencing real life. When you experience people and they say, and you always ask them, how's life? And they go, praise God, life's great. Man, God is good. Life's, life's fine. Life's, and they always, always, always. And what you realize very quickly is you go, either I'm just not a spiritualism or they're fake because life is really hard and you experience these waves of doubt. Now, these doubts can be intellectual doubts. These could be doubts where you say, I don't know if God's real. I don't know if Jesus still acts in the world. Maybe he wound up the world like a clock and let it go and time's just ticking and he's going to come back one day. But until then, I don't know what Jesus is doing. Maybe you experience doubts by way of uh, emotions. Maybe your emotions are always, you're just always experiencing doubt. When you're getting into a relationship, you're always wondering, I, I doubt that this person is going to treat me this way. You're always making meaning. Your emotions start to betray you. You just experience doubt a lot of times. Doubt is an interesting thing. But when we allow Jesus to be with us, when we allow him to be with us in the presence of what we're feeling, knowing or not knowing, experiencing or not experiencing, when we allow Jesus to be with us, what we find is he is active, not always active, at resolving your doubt He's active at doing what he does best. He's giving life to people around you. In fact, I would say this. I have not met a person yet who was dead in their doubt while witnessing people coming alive around them. I haven't seen that. I have seen people that say yes, and, and Mother Teresa would be one of them. I haven't met her personally, but I've read her story. Mother Teresa is someone who actually talks about her doubt. She journals about it all the time. But one of the main things that she always said was, but to see the activity of God, to see the activity of God with the people I'm holding, kept her alive. She wasn't dead in her doubt. You see the difference? She wasn't dead in her doubt. Um, I told you earlier that Church Multiplication Network is an organization that I travel with, and I get to travel and speak at college campuses and talk about um, church planting. So obviously these are Christian college campuses. It'd be weird you go to a non-Christian college campus, you talk about church planting. They don't know what that is. They don't know you can plant a thing called a church, some sort of tree out there somewhere. But on college campuses, Christian ones, I talk about it. And whether it be from the stage in a chapel or whether it be in the classroom, whenever I tell my story about, listen, I experienced a, a ton of doubt that I felt like I was drifting away from God. When I talk about that story, and then when I talk about, hey, in Denver, I know a lot of people who are wrestling with the faith. They haven't totally dismissed it, but they're just saying, I'm on the fringe. I don't actually know what I can know or what I can't know. I, I said, those are people in Denver. Those people are in their church. We're really glad that you're here. But when I talk about that, what's interesting is no hands go up and say, me too, that's me. But every single time I'm on a college campus, afterwards, whether it be chapel or um, in a room, someone will come up to me and say, hey, I don't know if I'm a Christian because there's so much I don't know about. And what I always encourage them is, you can commit in the face of uncertainty. 
You can commit to Jesus in the face of uncertainty. In fact, you're not certain about anything in your life. We actually don't know if lightning is not going to strike this building and kill us all in this moment, right? We don't know, but we're fairly certain it's not. So we commit in the face of uncertainty, right? You don't know if, if your life right now, the person that you're with, you don't know if they're going to break your heart, but you're going to commit in the face of uncertainty, you don't know if your car is going to start, but you're going to run through the rain when we're done and you're going to commit in the face of uncertainty. Don't you understand? This is what, this is what keeps you alive. Don't get dead in your doubt. And Thomas, this is Thomas. Okay. This is Thomas's experience. He was just resigning. We will die when we go there. Okay, let's keep going. John 11, 17 through 26. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Let's keep reading. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she's going, I know in the end things are going to be fine, right? She's, she's giving that answer. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. So some of you just need to hear Jesus saying to you, because your response has been, I know in the end things are going to be okay. I, I get that. In the end, my body will be healed. I get that. I, in the end, situation will be better. And Jesus' response is, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Martha was dead in her discouragement. Martha was the kind of person that if you remember the Mary Martha story, maybe you've never heard that before, but Jesus and his friends were coming through town and Martha has them over at her house and she's preparing a meal for them. Mary, her sister, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Mary, I mean, Mary's just the kind of person that is just compelled, enthralled by the teachings of Jesus. She's in it. She's so focused and listening. Martha's just running back and forth, trying to get everything ready. She's trying to prepare the right meal, do the dishes. And she goes to Jesus and she just tells Jesus, Tell Mary to help me. Tell Mary there's work to do. And Jesus tells her, Mary is doing the thing that's going to last. She's receiving the portion that will last forever. Martha was kind of a rule follower. This is what I see Martha as. Martha is the kind of person that I did these things. Now this should happen. Right? Lord, I asked you, I asked you early on when Lazarus was sick, I asked you, can you come heal him? I, I gave you enough time. You should have been here earlier. Why were you not here earlier? Oh yeah, okay. In the end, everything's going to be fine. I understand that. That's the rule. I get that. That's the rule, Jesus. I get that. And, and we don't have to like even imagine what it's like to be Martha. The times you've asked Jesus, come into the situation and then it doesn't happen. You go, where were you? Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, I can see it. Grab the hammer. This is just the way things are going to be. The discouragement is just, it just feels like we die, right? It literally feels like, okay, this is the way things are going to be. And Jesus' response is not, you're right, Martha, everything's going to be good in the end. Jesus' response is, I am the resurrection of the life. 
This is who I am. It's not just what I do. This is who I am. Meaning, when Jesus is in the room, things are being resurrected. Not just if you are not experiencing resurrection, lift your eyes and look around. Things are being resurrected. Jesus is there. And that's what's so powerful about this story. Martha has this anticipation for Jesus. um, And Jesus doesn't seem to follow through. He doesn't seem to follow through. Let's go, let's continue on the story. John chapter 11, verse 28 through 32. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. Now I'm just letting you know, I don't know what it's like to be someone's sister because I'm a, I'm a brother, you know what I mean? Uh, but uh, Mary and Martha have this thing where Martha keeps going to Mary and saying this is the way thing. I just feel like there's like, tension between Mary and Martha at all times is loving. So it gives me hope. When I watch Brennan and Piper going at it, I go, it gives me hope. It gives me hope. One day, maybe scriptures will be written about them because they're that great, but it gives me hope. Okay. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's a very honest, very honest prayer. So can we stop there and, and just recognize you're not the only one who's prayed the prayer. God, if you did something, this wouldn't have happened. If you had done something, this wouldn't have happened. Let's continue. Mary was dead in the delay. So Mary hurried, hurried, hurried to get to Jesus. But then it's like her whole spirit and demeanor dropped when she said, if you had been here, if you had been here, Lord, my brother wouldn't have died. Delay from God is not denial from God. And it's really important you know that. Delay in your life does not mean you're experiencing denial from God. But it is okay to say the prayer, Lord, if you had been here, this would not have happened. This would not have happened. What, what's really hard to know is we don't know God's timing. And someone has told me before, God's the most on-time late person that we've ever experienced. I think that's right, Okay. I think it's true that God's timing, when I look back, God's timing seems to have worked out really well in the grand scheme of things, but I'm not in the grand scheme of things. I don't care about the grand scheme of things. I care about now. I literally care more about right now than I do about tomorrow, if we're to be honest. We care about right now. And when we look back, we can recognize that Jesus' words ring true when he said, Lazarus is sick so that God could be glorified. And we can see situations in our lives where we look back and God's delay actually turns into God's glorification in certain situations in our life. But in the moment, it's the most frustrating, difficult truth to grab a hold of. It is very, very frustrating, if we're to be honest, when God delays. But what I want you to know is it is his silence doesn't mean that he's not there. His delay does not mean that he denies you. His delay could possibly mean that some sort of glorification is going to come out of the situation. And that's not a Christian cliche. 
In fact, it's the reverse of a Christian cliche. It's not saying everything's going to get better, just hold on. It's saying that the resurrection and the life is here, is here, doing things in the situation you're just not aware of. Because Thomas and Martha and Mary, they all were, they all had these things going on. But, but this is what happens in the story. What happens in the story later on, Jesus asked, where have you laid them? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. So I just want you to know, Jesus really does love this family. He says, see how you loved him. But some of them said, could not he have opened the eyes of the blind? Could he not have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. I want you to listen to the rest of the story. Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead for four days. So it's like stating the obvious. She's going by the rules again. Four days. Yes, he smells really bad. Okay? Four days. Something happened in his body. He smells bad. Four days. He is decomposing Jesus. In fact, there was a belief back then that for the first, not by Jews, but just like an ancient Near Eastern belief that for three days, the spirit of the person would hover around. So on the fourth day, we know like all hope is lost. So even if you believed in a little bit of heresy, now it's all lost. Okay. Uh, And she says, the rule is uh, he's going to smell really bad. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? doesn't mean Mary never experienced discouragement from Jesus. It's not what it means. He's getting her to focus on the resurrection and life that's about to take place, not in her, in someone else. Isn't that weird? In someone else. So they took away the stone and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him up. What's amazing about this whole story is that in the doubt, in the discouragement, in the delay that they're experiencing in the parts of your life that are dying, that you say, this feels dead. Doesn't feel like Jesus is active here. He tells them, let's participate in the resurrection of someone else that's taking place. Let's participate in that. Roll the stone away, and then there's something to do. When Lazarus comes forth, they participate in unbinding him. Now, a lot of the church fathers would actually tie discipleship to this. They would say that this illustrates that we have something to do with bringing people into the presence of Jesus, and we have something to do with help them unbind what bound them while they were dead. Isn't that amazing? They would tie this story to the whole process of discipleship. And, and what I would like to do is to tell you, in the death we experience, in the frustration we experience, when's the last time that you've brought someone who's dead in Christ to Jesus and watched what he does? This is who he is. This is just happens when people are around Jesus. They experience life. When's the last time and if you say, it hasn't, it's been a while, okay, I, I, I understand. But what I would say is, when it's a while, we start to focus on the dead things inside of us. 
But may we be like Mother Teresa, who's able to say with all the discouragement, doubt, with all this going on in my life, what keeps my faith alive is I see Jesus at work because when he's in room, resurrection has to happen. It's not just, and, and we wish it would always happen with us. It doesn't. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know how to fix it. I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why the bird didn't come alive. But what I do know is in my life, when things are breaking down, when I see someone experience the resurrection power of Jesus, things are then built up. Somehow, when I get my, my eyes onto the Lazarus and Jesus lets me participate, whether it's moving the stone away, getting them into the presence of God, whether it's unbinding them, helping them be disciples, whatever my participation is, I am in awe and wonder when I watch this happen. Um, so this is what I'm going to do because this is how sermons should end. I'm going to read you a story from C.S. Lewis, okay? In what I'm going to tell you, it's a powerful illustration that Lewis grabbed a hold of when he talks about people's eyes being focused on what Jesus is doing. The characters in Lewis's story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, were characters, honestly, that experienced a lot of the same emotions that we experienced. In fact, Edmund betrayed um, Aslan, the Christ figure, and he betrayed his brothers. We, we find that Lucy is like really questioning the existence of Aslan. Susan has to pull her back in, but then Susan starts saying, where's Aslan been? So they experience the type of emotions you and I experience. But at the end of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, something happens when Aslan goes to um, this courtyard. This courtyard is where the white witch would put all the stone statues of the people she would stab with her magic sword. And she would stab them and they would turn into stones. She put all the statues in here. And what I'm going to read you is the story but when Aslan went into the courtyard and all the people experiencing the same thing and tired from battle, experiencing what you and I experienced, and they're just exhausted, they, they go and they start to witness what's happening. And then I want you to watch what happens to them as they start to observe this. I want you to watch. What an extraordinary place, said Lucy. Lucy. All those stone animals and people too, it's like a museum. She doesn't even know what's about to happen. Hush, said Susan, her sister. It's like a Mary Martha thing going on. Aslan's doing something. Aslan's doing something. He was indeed. He had bounded up to the stone lion and breathed on him. Then without waiting a moment, he whisked around almost as if he had a cat chasing his tail and breathed also on a storm dwarf, a stone dwarf, which as you remember, was standing a few feet from the lion with its back to it. Then he pounced on some other stones and breathed on them too. But at that moment, Lucy said, Oh, Susan, look, look at the lion. I expect you've seen someone put a lighted match to a bit of newspaper, which is propped up in a grate against a unit of fire. And for a second, nothing seems to have happened. And then you notice a tiny streak of flame creeping along the edge of the newspaper. It was like that now. For a second, after Aslan had breathed upon him, the stone lion just looked the same. Then a tiny streak of gold began to run along as white marble does. Then it spread, then the color seemed to lick all over him, and the flame went up as it does in fire. Then, while his hindquarters were still obviously stone, the lion shook his mane, and all the heavy stone folds rippled into living hair. Then he opened a great red mouth, warm and living, and gave a yawn. And now his hind legs have come to life. He lifted one of them up and scratched himself. Then, having caught sight of Aslan, he went after him, 
whimpering with delight and jumping up to lick his face. Of course, the children's eyes turned to follow the lion, but the, salt, the sight they saw was so wonderful that they soon forgot about him. Everywhere the statues were coming to life. The courtyard looked no longer like a museum. It looked like a zoo. Creatures were running after Aslan and down, dancing around him till he was almost hidden in the, crown, in the crowd. And instead of the deadly silence, the whole place round, rang with the sound of happy roarings, yelps, barks, squeals, cooings, stampings, shouts, hoorays, songs, and laughter. That their eyes started to watch what was happening because this is who Jesus is. He's the resurrection. He breathes, people come to life. So what would be easy is to say in a passage like this, now let's pray about the parts of our life that feel dead. And that is good. That's a good application. I think that's true. But what, what I would like us to do is actually to say, with Easter just around the corner, when you came in, you got those invite cards, got those cards that just said, um, actually it says, I will invite, and there's a blank to have Easter with us. What I would like us to do is to practice, I think what John was telling us is that we will actually always be experiencing this why behind why does God do things the way he does or doesn't do things the way he does? We'll always experience that. But, but John points our eyes towards the stones that are coming to life, towards when, when Aslan is breathing and people come to life, when Jesus is saying Lazarus come forth and coming to life because he knows that's actually, we experience the resurrection power in that moment in ways we would have never imagined. We don't just want to look at ourselves and say, okay, how do we make this go away and this get better? What if Jesus is resurrecting things around us? Our situation may not change right now, but we want to gaze upon what Jesus is doing. We do. We want to do that. In fact, my prayer for Easter is that this place is a zoo. I don't want this to be a museum. I don't want this to be a museum of a bunch of dead people. I want this to be a zoo where the Spirit of God comes in and brings people to life. And guess what? In all of my doubts and all of my frustrations and all of my wondering, God, why aren't you doing this with my kids or in, in my family? Why aren't you doing this? And all of that, that my eyes start to look at what God is doing because He is the resurrection and the life. When He's in rooms, things come alive. So I can ask all my life, why, 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 why? That's okay. And I will ask all my life, why? But I don't want to miss out when Jesus is in the room doing something in my friend's life, in my family member's life. I don't want to miss out on that. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to take about one to two minutes. John's going to play quietly. That you're going to take that card that says, I will invite. And you're going to put a name in there that you would say, I want to see Jesus call that person forth. I want to see that happen. I want to see that happen. And here's the thing. If you go, I've never experienced Jesus that way. I'm still stone. How could I ask if I... Then you can write your own name in there. You can write your own name. You say, oh, I'm going to be here. And, I, and, the, and the thing is, is we want to see people come into a place that we've been praying over, where we believe God is doing things. And I'm not promising your situation will ever change. But I'm, not telling, but I'm also telling you, you don't need to concede. Don't get the hammer. God is at work. And in you witnessing the resurrection around you, your faith may rise and you may start to see things happen. You may start to see things happen. So let's take 
about a minute or two minutes, and we're going to write a name on that card. And imagine when someone saw you experience the breath of Christ and come alive. I promise you that person that witnessed that, whether it be your parent, your friend, person that witnessed that had stuff going on in their life. I promise you that. I promise you they felt like parts of their life were dying. But what that did to their faith is amazing. They may have helped you unbind yourself. And they may have been the one that discipled you. Everyone who's had anyone um, brought into the presence of God knows we're still dealing with stuff. But at the end of the day, the resurrection will happen with people around us. Well, I wrote down a name that I've been praying for for over three years. And I will do everything I can to remove this stone. I'll do everything I can to see them come to a place where the gospel is being made known. And then I just prayed with Lisa um, that God's voice would call him forth. And then if, if he asked me to, I'll just unbind him. You see the progress there? And I'll still have things I'm dealing with. But when I see the resurrection power of Jesus breathe on people, when I see that happen, for some reason, everything else just kind of fades away. It doesn't go away. It fades away. It becomes less prevalent, less pressing, um, because I know Jesus is at work. There were no questions texted in tonight, so you guys are just way better at this uh, than I am. So, uh, no, that I, I want to honor you by way of saying thank you for staying engaged. If you do have questions, you can email them in. But can I pray? I pray for us. Father, we are all holding names that are more precious to you than they are to us. And I feel like Mary and Martha because I know this person's story and I think, Jesus, if only you intervened earlier, none of this would be happening right now. But I believe that your glory will be made known in this person. I pray, pray, God, for this individual. Pray that what we did tonight, this exercise, is not just writing down a name, but that we will do everything we can to remove that stone because we trust you will call them forth. May this happen because you are the resurrection and the life and you are among us. So it's not just what you do every now and then. This is who you are all the time. So we pray for that in Jesus' name. We set our eyes on the people who are of stone and we trust in the one who calls them forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.